Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're going to be talking about Philip III by the grace of God, King of Castile, Leon, Aragon, and the Two Sicilies, Jerusalem, Portugal, Navarre, Granada, Toledo, Valencia, Galicia, Mallorca, Seville, Cordoba, Corsica, Murica, Guinea, Algrave, Gibraltar, and the Canary Islands, also of the Eastern and Western Indies, the islands and terra firma of the Ocean Sea, Archduke of Austria, Duke of Burgundy and Milan, Count of Habsburg, Barcelona and Biscay, and the Lord of Malonia. In short, Philip III, the King of Spain. Spain at this time covered a vast majority of Europe, this time period being the six, late 16th into 17th century. So basically started the Thirty Years' War in that time period. And Spain is still relatively powerful, despite it being in what many consider to be a relative decline. So jumping right into things, Philip III was not really expected to inherit the throne. He did at the time have two older brothers. First, Don Carlos, who would die of poor health, but was also declared mentally insane by many people within the Spanish court. But also another second brother who would end up dying in infancy, well not infancy, at the age of six, so in childhood. So Philip III was not exactly made to be on the throne, but that was the fate that was set for him. So after Philip's older brother, Don Carlos, died, Philip II, the then king of Spain, had concluded that one of the causes of Carlos's condition had been the influence of warring factions at the Spanish court. He believed that Carlos's education and upbringing had been badly affected by this, which resulted in that lunacy and disobedience. And accordingly, Philip II sought out to pay much greater attention to the arrangements for his later son, Philip III. Philip II appointed Juan de Zuniga, then Prince Diego's governor, to continue the role for Philip as, as his ed main educator, and chose Garcia de Loiza as his royal tutor. They were drawn by Cristobal de Mora, a close supporter of Philip II, and in combination with this, Philip believed they would provide a consistent, stable upbringing for Prince Philip, and ensure that he avoided the same fate as Carlos did. Philip's education was to follow the model for royal princes laid down by Father Juan de Marina, focusing on the imposition and restraints and encouragement to form the personality of, an indiv of the individual at an early age, aiming to deliver a king who was neither tyrannical nor excessively under the influence of his courtiers. However, this would really come to not be true, as Philip III's reign would be dominated by other people having influence over him. Prince Philip appears, to, by many of his contemporaries at the time, to be well-liked, considered to be dynamic, good-natured, and earnest, suitably pious, having a lively body and peaceful disposition, albeit a relatively weak constitution. The comparison with the memory of the disobedient and ultimately insane older brother Carlos was usually a positive one, although some commented that Prince Philip actually appeared less intelligent and politically competent than his late brother. Although Philip was educated in Latin, French, Portuguese, and astronomy, he appears to have been a competent li linguist. Recent historians even suspect that much of his tutor's focus on Philip's undeniably pleasant, pious, and respectful disposition was to avoid reporting that languages aside, he was not in fact intelligent or academically gifted. Nonetheless, Philip does not appear to have been naive. His correspondence to his daughter shows a distinctive cautious streak in advice of dealing with court intrigue. However, many still did consider him to be relatively incompetent, especially when he would come to be dominated by various factions within the Spanish court. 
And it was during this childhood that Philip would meet really probably the one of the most influential figures that would come to influence his political thinking, but also would be running in that in an aspect a large amount of Philip's government. So this person would be the Marquis of Digne, the first the future Duke of Lerma, then a gentleman of the king's chamber. In his early teens, Lerma and Philip became close friends, but Lerma was considered unsuitable by the king and Philip's tutors. Lerma was dispatched to Valencia as a viceroy in 1595 with the aim of removing him from, his com from Philip's company. But after Lerma pleaded poor health, he was allowed to return two years later. By now in poor health himself, King Philip II was becoming increasingly concerned over the prince's future, and he attempted to, re to establish de Mora as a future trusted advisor to his son, reinforcing de Loyza's position, appointing him archbishop to grant him greater influence. In 1598, Philip, however, would die after a painful illness, leaving the Spanish Empire to his son, King Philip III. So King Philip III, as I mentioned earlier, his reign would be dominated by many important figures. And this will especially come into question when it comes to his future wife. So getting into that, Philip would marry his cousin, Margaret of Austria, on the 18th of April, 1599, a year after becoming king. Margaret, the sister of then-future Emperor Ferdinand II, would be one of the three women at Philip's court who would apply considerable influence over the king. Margaret was considered by contemporaries at the time to be extremely pious, in some cases excessively pious, and too influenced by the church. A student very skillful in her political dealings, although melancholic and unhappy over the influence of the Duke of Lerma over her husband at court. This would be a large conflict that the Duke of Lerma and other blocks of influential people would have. So Philip would kind of go back and forth in, in exactly who he would side with in government, and eventually it would lead to a conflict between the two different sides. So Margaret continued to fight an ongoing battle with the Duke of Lerma for influence up until her death in 1611, upon which, and Philip w was mainly influenced by Margaret because they did have a really close relationship and was especially attached to her when she bore him a son in 1605. Margaret, alongside with Philip's grandmother, Empress Maria, the Austrian representative to the Spanish court, and Margaret of the Cross, Maria's daughter, formed a powerful, uncompromising Catholic and pro-Austrian voice within Philip's life. They were successful in convincing Philip to provide financial support from for Ferdinand from 1600 onwards, and Philip steadily acquired other religious advisors who would continue to influence his more pious thinking and really counteract the influence of the Duke of Lerma during the time. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done discussing the early portion of the life of Philip III, the King of Spain. Now we're going to get into the style of government, which is important to know if you want to understand how these power struggles were really working between the various factions within the Spanish court. So at the time, the Spanish crown was ruled through a system of royal councils, the most significant of which being the Council of State and the Council for War, which were in turn supported by seven professional councils for different regions and four specialized councils for the Inquisition, military orders, finance, and the crusade tax. These councils were then supplemented by smaller committees or junas as necessary, such as the Juna of the Night, through which Philip II would exercise personal authority towards the end of his reign. As a matter of policy, Philip had tried to avoid appointing grandees to major positions of power within his government and relied heavily on lesser nobles, the so-called service nobility. Philip II had the traditional system of cons consuls and applied a high degree of personal scrutiny to them, especially in matters of paperwork, which he declined to delegate, the result being a, quote, ponderous process. To his contemporaries, the degree of personal oversight he exercised was excessive. His self-imposed rule as the chief clerk of the Spanish Empire was not a thought entirely appropriate at the time. 
And Philip first started to become engaged in practical government at the age of 15 when he would join Philip the Se- his father, Philip II's private committee. Philip II, by taking personal control though, over these various institutions, allowed to- himself to really limit the influence of the nobility and really centralize power around the king, something that Philip III wasn't really able to do. Philip III's approach to government was stemmed from three main drivers, really, really splitting away from what Philip II was doing. Firstly, it was heavily influenced by the by the Irenic ideas being circulated in the Italian circles in reaction to new humanist theories of governments, especially those made by Machiavelli. Writers such as Girolamo Fraccetta, who became a particular favorite of Philip, had propagated a conservative definition of reason of state, which centered on exercising a princely prudence and a strict obedience to the laws and customs of the country they, that one ruled. Secondly, Philip may have shared Lerma's view that the government style of Philip II was fast-proving and practical and unnecessarily excluded the great nobles of the kingdom. It had been creak- creaking pretty badly in the last decades of his father's life as his health became more waning and his nobles got a little more upset that they were being excluded from the institutions of the Spanish crown. Lastly, Philip's own personality and his friendship with the Duke of Lerma heavily shaped his approach to policymaking. The result was a radical shift in the role of the crown and the government from the model of Philip II. Now it's time to get into a bit more specific about these different factions, specifically the Duke of Lerma, probably single-handedly the most influential figure in Philip III's life and reign. Within a few hours of Philip III ascending to the throne, Lerma had been made a royal counselor by the king and set about establishing himself as a fully-fledged royal favorite. Lerma in due course declared a duke, positioned himself as the gateway to the king, and all business of the government was to arrive in writing and be channeled through Lerma before reaching him, allowing him to control what the king saw and the priority in which they were seen and addressed by the king. While Philip was not hugely active in government in other ways, once these uh, consultants had reached him, he appears to have been assiduous in commenting on them. Debates and royal councils would now only be begin upon the written instructions of the king, which were once again given through Lerma. All members of the royal council were under orders to maintain complete transparency with Lerma as the king's personal representative. And in 1612, the councils were ordered by Philip to obey Lerma as if he were king. The, the degree to which Lerma played himself an active role in government has actually been disputed, however. Contemporaries at the time were inclined to see Lerma's hand in every single action of government. Others have since thought Lerma to have neither the temperament nor energy to impose himself greatly on the actions of government. But yet others still consider Lermer to have carefully attended only those council of states that address matters of great importance to the king, creating the space for a wider professionalization of government that had been lacking under Philip II. This new system of government became increasingly unpopular very quickly, though. The novel idea of a Valido exercising power went against the long-standing popular conception that the king should exercise his powers personally, not through another such as Lerma. Before long, the apparatus of the Spanish government was packed with Lerma's relatives, Lerma's servants, and his political friends, to the exclusion of many others. Lerma responded by further limiting his public visibility in politics, avoiding signing and writing documents personally, and constantly stressing that he was humbly only working on behalf of his master, Philip III. So through his positions, Lerma really solidified himself and his allies as the centerpiece of the Spanish government at the time which really would lead to the many rivalries aimed against him, which would lead to his actual eventual downfall. Now, the Lerma's role as royal favorite at the court was further complicated, however, by the rise of proconsuls under Philip III's reign, who were significant Spanish representatives overseas who came to exercise independent judgment and even independent policies in the absence of strong leadership. 
The challenge to the government communication during the period encouraged aspects of this. But the phenomenon was much more marked under Philip III than either the reign of his son or his father, most likely due to the fact that Philip III was a lot more reserved from the political affairs of the kingdom than his father was. Now, one of the biggest challenges where we can see this dispute with the proconsuls would be in the Netherlands. Now, in the Netherlands, Philip II had bequeathed his remaining territories in the Low Countries to his daughter Isabella of Spain and her husband, Archduke Albert, under the condition that she, if she died without heirs, the province would return to the Spanish crown. Now, this wasn't much of a risk because Isabella was notoriously known for not having any kids, and it was clear that this was only intended to be a temporary measure. As a result, Philip's foreign policy in the Netherlands would be exercised through the strong-willed Archduke, but with the knowledge that ultimately the Spanish Netherlands would return to the Spanish crown once Isabella would die. Now, another important independent figure in the Netherlands at the time was the Italian-born Spanish general Ambrosio Spinola, who played a crucial role in the army of Flanders. Having demonstrated his military prowess at the Siege of Ostend in 1603, Spinola started rapidly to propose and implement policies almost independently of the central councils in Madrid, somehow managing to achieve military victories even without funding from the Spanish government. De Lerma was uncertain of how to deal with Spinola. On one hand, De Lerma really needed a successful military commander in the Netherlands, but on the other hand, Lerma was contemptuous of Spinola's relatively low origins and scared of the potential to destabilize De Lerma in court because of his ability to exercise policies and decisions without influence and consent of the Spanish court. In the years leading to the outbreak of the war in 1618, this being the Thirty Years' War, Spinola was working to produce a plan to finally defeat the Dutch, involving an intervention in the Rhineland, followed by fresh hostilities aiming to cut the Low Countries in two, portrayed at the time as the spider in the web of Catholic politics in the region. Spinola was operating without significant consultation with Philip in Madrid at the time. In Italy, a parallel situation would emerge. The Count of Fuentes, as governor of Lombardy, exploited the lack of guidance from Madrid to pursue his high, own highly interventionist policy across northern Italy, including marking independent offers to support the papacy by invading the Venetian Republic in 1607. Fuentes remained in power and pursued his own policies until his own death. The Marquis of Vitafranca, as governor of Milan, similarly exercised his own considerable judgment on foreign policy during this time period. So really you see the, arrive, the rising as a result of Philip's Philip III's lack of strong hand in the governing of the state, various people really ignoring the Duke of Lerma and making decisions on their own, which really weakened the Duke of Lerma's position as the royal favorite in the court and as really the head of state in a, in a sense, because he really did exercise, alongside his political allies and his family, many of the day-to-day -day jobs of the Spanish government on behalf of the king. As I mentioned earlier, the king basically said to the nobles of the Spanish kingdoms, Treat Lerma as if he was your king. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. For all of you just joining us, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about the Duke of Lerma, the various political institutions in Spain, and also the rise of challenges to the rule of governance that was being done by de Lerma. So now let's get into Lerma's downfall. Um, from 1612 onwards, and certainly by 1617, uh, the Duke of Lerma administration was crumbling. The monopoly of power in the hands of Lerma's Sandoval family had generated numerous enemies. Lerma's personal enrichment in office had become a scandal. His extravagant spending and personal debts were beginning to alarm his own son, the Duke of Usida. And lastly, ten years of quiet diplomacy by various members within the Spanish court 
had begun to apply personal and religious pressure on the king to alter his method of government. Philip remained close to Lerma, however, and supported him in becoming a cardinal in March 1618 under Pope Paul V, a position which he would offer Lerma some protection, would offer Lerma some protection as his government, be government began to collapse around him. Lerma fell to an alliance of interests. His son Usida led the attack, aiming to protect his future interests, allied with Don Paltazar de Zuniga, a well-connected noble with background in diplomacy across Europe, whose own nephew Oliveris was close to the heir of the throne, Prince Philip. Lerma would depart for his ducal seat, and for six weeks, Philip would then do nothing. Until October of that year, where Philip signed a decree renouncing the powers of the former Valido and announcing that he would rule in person. Usida initially took over as primary voice at the court, but without his father's extensive powers, while Zuniga became Philip's minister for foreign and military affairs. Philip, whilst unwilling to move further against Lerma, took politically symbolic action against Lerma's former secretary, Rodrigo Calderon, a figure em emblematic of the former administration. Calderon, suspected of having killed Philip's wife, Queen Margaret, by witchcraft in 16... 11, was ultimately tortured and then executed by Philip for more plausible murder of the soldier Francisco de Juarez. So, right here, this is really the downfall of the Delerma government. Delerma, through his consolidation of control and through the king's own, I guess, lacking of a steady hand in government, led to his own downfall and eventually his own fleeing from the country in order to essentially become a clergy member. And this would lead to Philip having more of a role in government and re- enforced the more pro-Catholic pro-Catholic Austrian side of politics within the Spanish court. One. And now we're going to get into specifically the domestic policy of Philip III and what was done under him, the De Lerma government, and other political figures at the time. So Philip inherited an empire that had been enlarged by his father quite considerably. On the peninsula itself, Philip II had acquired Portugal in 1580, and across Europe, despite the ongoing Dutch revolt, Spanish possessions in Italy and along the Spanish road appeared secure. Globally, the combination of Castilian and Portuguese colonial territories gave a Spanish word unparalleled reach from the Americas to the Philippines and beyond through India to Africa. The challenge, however, for such a ruler was that these territories were in legal reality separate bodies, different entities that were bound together through the supraterritorial royal institutions of the Spanish crown. Utilizing Castilian nobility as a ruling caste, but that came at the extent of many other noble castes, feeling excluded from this deal specifically. Even within the peninsula itself, where Philip had the most control, he would only rule the kingdoms of Castile, Aragon, Valencia, and Portugal alongside the autonomous, uh, autonomous provinces of Catalonia and Andalusia, all only loosely joined together through the institutions of the Castile monarchy and the person of Philip III himself. Each part, though, had different taxation, privileges, military arrangements, and in practice, the level of taxation in many of the more... Pr peripheral provinces was less than in Castile, but the privileged position of the Castilian nobility at all senior levels of royal employment was a contentious issue for many of these less favored provinces and the various dukedoms and kingdoms throughout his, very, his large empire. So one of the biggest policies that he would undergo first in 1609 would be the expulsion of the Morsicos, who were descendants of Muslims that had converted to Christianity during the Reconquista in previous centuries. But despite their conversion, they retained a distinctive culture, which included many Islamic practices, which wasn't really acceptable to the incredibly pious Philip III and his incredibly pious court. So as a result, he would issue an edict in 1609 calling for the expulsion of all some 200,000 Morsicans from the Spanish kingdom, which greatly had a large effect on the economy as they provided an incredibly cheap source of labor and their sudden exit with all their wealth and that labor potential really was a drag on the 
Spanish economy. It was really a not-so-good policy for the Spanish Empire to really implement. So now that we're on to economics, Philip III's reign was marked by significant economic problems across Spain. Famine struck during the 1590s through a sequence of bad harvests, while 1599 and 1600, and for several years afterwards, saw a terrible outbreak of bubonic plague across Spain, which ended up killing about 10% of the population. One of the first modern novelists in Europe at the time captured the despondent mood of the period, describing the plague that came down from Castile and the famine that rose from Andalusia to grip the country. However, whilst failing harvests affected the rural areas most, the plagues receded the urban population most significantly, in turn reducing the demand for manufactured goods and undermining the economy even further. The result was an economically weakened Spain with a rapidly falling population due to this plague. Financially, Philip's situation did not even appear much better. He'd inherited huge debts from his father, and an unhelpful tradition that the Kingdom of Castile bore the brunt of royal taxation. Castile had carried about 65% of total imperial costs by 1616. Philip III received no money from the Cortes or Parliaments of Aragon, the Basque provinces or Portugal. Valencia only provided one contribution in 1604, and Philip didn't openly challenge the situation, but instead depended more and more heavily on the Castilian Cortes. In turn, the Cortes increasingly began to grant new ties of money to specific projects, subtly but steadily altering the relationship between the king and the Cortes. By the financial crisis of 1607, the Cortes had even insisted that it be recalled every three years and that Philip take an oath on pain of excommunication to promise that he had spent the royal funds in line with the promises made previously to the Cortes. Despite the efforts of Philip III, though, and the Duke of Lerma, nothing they could really do would be able to resolve the situation. Spain would eventually go bankrupt in 1607, and depopulation would continue to be a huge issue for the Spanish crown. So Philip III's reign was really one of economic disaster and one of little reform and recovery for the Spanish economy. In regards to foreign policy, Philip would very briefly involve Spain in the Thirty Years' War, intervening on behalf of his uh, wife's uh, brother, Emperor Ferdinand II of Austria, and he would also engage in a war with the Dutch and the English from between 1609 and 1621, mainly in regards to the Low Country territories. So the reign of Philip II as a whole is one that's relatively considered by historians to be one of failure. He didn't really do much to help the country. He was laid back in his reforms. He let courtiers and whatnot dominate his policy decisions. And while Spain didn't utterly collapse under his rule, it certainly didn't grow at all, and it really saw a setup for future economic crises, especially its debts amounted as he entered the Thirty Years' War, engaged in further wars with the Dutch, and began to cons more and more lose power and authority as he depended more upon loans from the Cortes and other creditors to continue to keep the country running. So thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Come back next week where we're going to delve into the life of Charles III, a future king of Spain during the 1800, 18th century, who through the Bourbon reforms would actually move to revitalize the backwards trend of Spain. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.